if the only point of sitting down, meaning in meditation for you, is to sit down to be a better version of yourself, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Like you need to sit down to rise up. And if you're not going to rise up for other people, then you should just retire this pursuit of sitting down. Welcome back to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, gang. Hi. Okay, so Megan here. When I saw today's guest on an IG Live with friend of the show, Rabbi Steve Leader, I was so moved that I immediately slipped into her DMs. I cannot wait to bring on Shelly. I I always got to practice her name. It's Ty Gelsky, I think I got it right, aka Mindful Skater Girl, who is an internationally renowned meditation leader, motivational speaker, and self-care activist who helps people connect their inner work to the outer world. We'll find out exactly what that means and talk to the author about her buzzy debut, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. Chelsea Handler wrote the foreword and President Biden endorsed Shelley saying she's saving people's lives and giving them hope. President Biden says that about me every day, whatever, <laughs> every day. No big deal. Just a little presidential praise. Heidi here. So just for some background, Shelly's also the founder of Pandemic of Love. That's pandemicoflove.com, a global grassroots mutual aid organization that started from her kitchen table in March 2020. Scrolling through messages and emails about the impact of COVID-19, Many filled with fear of job loss, lack of food, and mounting bills. Many expressing concerns for those in need. She was struck with an idea. What if she could connect people who need to get help with the people who are able and eager to give help? So that's what she did. And her initial effort went viral, kicking off what would become Pandemic of Love. By March 2021, Pandemic of Love managed to match more than 1.5 million people and made it possible for donors to directly transact $54 million, $54 million to those in need. Shelly has been featured on CNN Heroes, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, and Upworthy as well as recognized by notables from John Kabat-Zinn to Kristen Bell. From Maria Shriver to Senator Cory Brooker, she was named one of the 12 powerful women of the mindfulness movement by mindful.org and has appeared in the New York Times and Washington Post. Based in Florida, she frequently travels worldwide with her husband and son and connects daily with her 102,000 followers at Mindful Skater Girl. Jamie here. So we can't wait to bring on this powerhouse, but we've only scratched the surface with that intro. Shelly has an incredible backstory. So here's where I set up why you should listen to today's show. Listen to this show if you agree we are all interconnected and when one of us heals, we all heal. If you believe self-care isn't self-centered, but truly a selfless act. And if you'd like to join the ranks of Deborah Messing, Kelly Clarkson, Kristen Bell, Kelly Ripa, Senator Cory Booker, Dr. Jill Biden, and many more in supporting the pandemic of love. I think we should get right into it. Let's do it. 
Okay, Shelly, Megan, you had me at Rabbi Steve, who is a friend of Off the Gram. Uh, the second I saw your IG Live with him, I immediately slipped into your DMs and the rest is history because I am beyond excited to welcome you to the show today. So I'm going to kick it off with a question. First of all, what inspired or spurred you to write your first book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World? Well, you know, so it's really funny because it's a funny story about A, writing the book and B, how even the title came about, right? I sort of never really thought I would ever write a book, never thought, of course, I would even become a meditation teacher full time. But I felt like even pre-pandemic, like I had something to say about showing up and about how frustrated I was about the fact that there's so many people in this wellness space Um, And certainly now this industrial wellness complex that we sort of live in where, you know, people are trying to like sell you juices and beauty products and all of these kind of quick fixes. And there's so many people who are stuck in this like hamster wheel that are never getting off of the inner work, inner work, inner work. I have to fix myself. I have to, you know, do better and be a better version of myself. Well, I get frustrated with that because I think, well, if you're in pursuit of a better version of yourself, but you're not like connecting it to the outside world, to the real world that we live in, then A, you're never going to get to the best version of yourself because the best version of the world starts with the best version of us. So there's that inherent connection. And I think that as we are going through this journey and like really doing that deep inner work, right? The shadow work, healing our intergenerational traumas, it's our moral obligation. It's our responsibility to actually heal all the people in our community and the people that we love and care about and that are in our circles of influence. So I wanted to connect those dots for people and encourage people to not wait until they're quote unquote fixed because A, first of all, they're likely not broken or definitely not as broken as they think they might be, right? And B, that other people may have the right words or the right tools to help us in that healing process. And so we've got to sort of start to take this communal approach. So that's sort of the message. And I and I felt really inspired when I was on stage at a Wisdom 2.0 conference pre-COVID with a bunch of other activists and community organizers. And the moderator, who is the CEO of Search Inside Yourself, which is Google's Meditation and Mindfulness Institute internally at Google, asked me a question. And I remember being incredibly fired up at that time. And I just looked out at the audience. And it's an audience that I had been in front of years before, a lot of familiar faces. And I just really just got sort of pissed off. You know, I don't know what it what it was that day, or, you know, maybe the jet lag, or I have no idea. But that feisty version of myself just looked out in the crowd. And I was like, just turn the lights up. I want to look at everyone for a second. I need to see everybody's faces. And I just said, you know, I've seen so many of you. And I, I see so many of you that are like coming back year after year after year, and you're doing the inner work, and you're trying to find yourselves. And you're never going to find yourselves if you're not like willing to actually really create this communal pursuit to find yourself with other people. And if the only point of sitting down, meaning in meditation for you, is to sit down to be a better version of yourself, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Like you need to sit down to rise up. And if you're not going to rise up for other people, then you should just retire this pursuit of sitting down. And I think that really got a reaction from the crowd. And so I was like, bam, that's it. That's my book. Like I found my thing. 
Yeah, totally. And you talk about it. You're, you describe yourself as a self-care activist. Can you yeah. explain exactly what you mean by self-care activist? Sure. So I think the term self-care, like the wellness industry, has been hijacked by a lot of people, especially in the last few decades. Self-care actually came out of the women's rights liberation movement, you know, and, and the civil rights era when people really had to use self-care, not just as a way to, you know, feel better in the moment, but really to survive. It wasn't a pursuit of thriving. It was a pursuit of survival. Uh, it wasn't self-indulgent in any way. It was really something that individuals, women, and especially people of color who were not getting the care that they needed within you know, the systems that were created and designed to not give them the care they need, they had to basically hijack self-care for themselves and say like, okay, we're going to take care of ourselves and we're going to take care of our own because nobody else is going to be doing that for us and to the extent and the degree that we need it to be done. And so it's really a hearkening back to the origins of self-care. And in terms of activist, you know, I really feel like I am always rooting for the underdog. That is something that I am incredibly passionate about. And so I spend a really, you know, big portion of my life, especially nowadays, bringing self-care tools to communities where people are underserved. So it might be communities of individuals that are affected by gun violence on an ongoing basis. It could be social workers, it could be refugee aid workers across the ocean or here in this country, and just individuals that really need to have resilience, but really pre-zilience, right? It's sort of like what you need even before you can bounce back uh, and pre-covery before you can recover. And so that's what a self-care activist is. It's somebody who basically is going to go into the trenches and sit down with people in in these dark spaces and say, okay, let's figure out how we can create safety nets and communities of care and formalize your self-care so that, yes, you can survive, but you can also thrive and then in doing so help other people survive and thrive. Well, this is Jamie. I love this. Look, I mean, and I think for anyone listening, I mean, this sounds like a, like a tall order, right? I love what I'm hearing because I have been in spiritual recovery circles for many years. I'm, I'm a sober addict and alcoholic many years. And a big part of that community is what I never found to be helpful about talk therapy when I would go to one-on-one therapy in my younger years was it was like, me, 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 me. And here's what he did to me. And here's what my mom did to me. And here's what she did to me. And you never, and so when I got to these more, you know, 12-steppy and, and different types of spiritual communities, they were like, enough about you. Well, how can you be of service? And here's the deal. They weren't doing it for me to be altruistic. They were doing it because it actually helps me to get out of my head and put out my hand and help others. So I yeah. think you're really onto something. I guess where I'm wondering for our listeners is this sounds like, you know, we're really asking them to go out and bang down doors and take something really big. Like what is, it sounds scalable, right? Like, is it just reaching out and helping one person? Is it taking action on a community basis? Like, tell us more about you being featured on CNN Heroes as the founder of Pandemic of Love, because I know this came after COVID-19. And I think we are all looking to have an impact and economic impact in our communities and everything that was going on with the cultural conversations. So can we just talk about that organization, like its birth, its rise, its mission? Yeah, but let's take it back to the root of your question for a moment. You know, take it back to the place of 
the opportunity of being able to make individuals feel seen and heard, which I think like certainly that's part of the 12 step process for sure. But then it's about making sure you mirror that for other people as well. Right. There's a really great Buddhist proverb that basically says, uh, tend to the area of the garden that you can reach. And I think for so many of us, you know, we kind of look at our gardens, our proverbial gardens or the forest or what have you. And we're like, everything's burning. Everything's going to hell. The world is so daunting in this moment. And we're like, and I just give up because it's too overwhelming. It's too overwhelming to even think about, to look at, and you don't know where to start. So what do most people do? They don't start. They do nothing because they're just like in that uh, fight, flight, freeze mode. And most people are just like stuck in like freeze. (laughs) And so, yeah, they're paralyzed. They're paralyzed because they just don't know where to start. And so what I always tell people is just look to the areas of the gardens that you can tend to. And so if it's just your little area that basically is like a couple of uh, planters and, and God only knows what, so to speak, you know, that's what you should be focusing on. And so that translated into your real life is like your circles of influence. Who is in your circle of influence, right? It's your friends, your closest friends, your family, obviously, maybe the person that you interact with, the people that you interact with at work, your peers at work, the people that you see the most often. And how can you make sure that they're really okay beyond just saying like, hey, how are you today? You know, like, how are you really? What do you need? What do you need in your life at this moment? What are you struggling with? Because a lot of times we have these like superficial conversations and we don't really know what struggles people are going through, whether it's mental or whether it's financial or whether, you know, it's, it's a host of other things. Right. And so a a perfect example is like when I was a single mom, you know, years ago, my circles of influence, my friends, the closest people to me looked at me and said, what do you need at this moment? And I was like, as a single mom who was working full time and, and also going through health challenges, I was like, time, I need time. I have time poverty give me back some time. And so my friends basically said, okay, we're going to pick up your son and take him to school twice a week, even though it was totally out of their way. And we're going to do this for you on Wednesday night. You know, we'll arrive with a lasagna tray on Wednesday night. So you don't have to think about dinner. And just that little bit went such a long way for me. So how does that translate out into like pandemic of love? You know, pandemic of love is a grassroots mutual aid organization we are not a nonprofit. We're a nonprofit disruptor, and we're proudly so. Basically, what mutual aid is, is just built on this premise that every single human being on this planet, regardless of their socioeconomic status, so I don't care if you're like Jeff Bezos at this point, has something that they need. And every single person on this planet has something that they can offer. And if we can just create a direct exchange and let people know okay, this person needs X and this person has X, this person has Y and this person needs Y, we can create these beautiful direct connections and an opportunity for people to feel seen and heard and feel like they not just contribute, but also feel like they're in a safe space to ask for what they need without being embarrassed about being vulnerable because asking for what you need is so incredibly hard for so many people. And so I started Pandemic of Love just to tend to my garden, which was my community in South Florida. I had no lofty dreams or goals of like, you know, starting this global uh, movement. 
right? And now we're in 16 countries and we have 280 chapters. I had no, no dreams or like thoughts of doing that at all. I was really concerned about the individuals in my South Florida community, in my meditation community, who I knew were already struggling as we were going into lockdown mode. I knew that they relied on free lunches for their kids and breakfasts and that they could not fill their fridge up as we were going into quarantine. And I wanted to make sure that their lights were kept on and that their kids could still go to school because, you know, could they afford or did they have a laptop? Would they be able to afford Wi-Fi? Really just all the things that many of us who are living this sort of normal existence take for granted, right? That people are struggling with and we're struggling with before this pandemic ever hit. So I just really am not a technologically savvy person at all. I just created two really simple Google Forms a give help form and a get help form. And the initial versions or iterations of these forms only had like five questions because I didn't fathom for one minute that I would have to ask the question like, where are you from? Because I thought everybody would just be from my community who would, you know, be going on this website. Well, it wasn't even a website on these forms. And I just posted the two links on my social media uh, pages and, you know, pun intended, but love and kindness is viral. And it's infectious. And I woke up the next morning after posting it. And there were thousands of people who had signed up on both sides. And I realized that uh, in a time of disconnection, it was an opportunity to connect people and that we can have this amazing opportunity to make people feel seen and heard like they can contribute regardless of where they're coming from. And even if they need something, they can still give something back to somebody in their community and pay it forward. So it was like this beautiful moment. I think it was like the right time. Well, it was the wrong time, but it was the right time at the wrong time. And uh, and it just caught fire. And it was amazing to see. And it's still, you know, rippling out. And we're still growing and we're still transacting. We just crossed the 2 million match mark. And we've transacted directly over $60 million between donors and people in need, which is amazing. It's incredible really amazing. It is incredible. This is Heidi. And I just want to say thank you for giving me and probably all of our listeners faith in humanity again, because I think that the pandemic has been really rough with a lot of like vitriol and hate and separation, just in terms of faith in other humans. And to hear that love and kindness truly are viral, it really it like opens up something in the heart again that was a little bit missing or a lot of it missing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. So I wanted to take it back because Sit Down to Rise Up opens with the incredible story of how you were kidnapped Mm. at the Brooklyn DMV, I think, when you were two years old and rescued by a remarkable stranger. So I can imagine because of what you just said, but can you let us in on how that event affected your life and continues to influence your work as an activist? Your belief in goodness? Yeah, no, definitely. (laughs) That story is so wild. And I've heard it, you know, told so many times by my parents, really just for the shock value, I think, of like dinner conversation, because what do you talk about, right? So they would just casually like slip it into like dinner conversation and be like, oh, yeah, when Shelly was kidnapped and people would be like, wait, 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 take the conversation back. What? Your daughter was kidnapped? Well, that's and how so, I felt yeah. when I read the like <laughs> top line of it. I was like, yeah, this can't be real. And I was like, oh. <gasps> Yeah. And especially as like moms, you know, like as, as parents, you're like, that's my worst nightmare. Like that is absolutely the worst possible thing that could ever happen. 
And so I was at the Brooklyn DMV. I, I, we had just immigrated to this country. I didn't speak English. My mom barely spoke English. My mom was just going to get her, her license at that point. And this is in the late 1970s. And, you know, before uh, surveillance cameras and cell phones and anything else, right? And my mom was called in to get her eye exam. And she was, you know, surprised when she finished her eye exam that I was gone. I was missing. I was a very outgoing child. So I don't really remember these moments, but I have a feeling that I probably may have, I could have wandered off and I may have made friends with some people in the waiting room. It's very likely impossible, but I was carried off by a couple and a woman who sat in the waiting room with my mother and I, when we were waiting to be called in, noticed that something was wrong. Like she saw me with my mother and then she saw me walking out and she had this like split second decision to make. Do I do nothing? Do I go in and try to find the mother and then tell her what just happened? Or do I run after these individuals and try to kind of see where they're going? And so she decided to run outside of the DMV and she started to walk behind these individuals for blocks, city blocks in Brooklyn to like wait and see where or what building they were going to go into and to kind of make it, you know, so that they couldn't see what she was doing. So really a good Samaritan. That's how I call her, like name her in the book is that she was a good Samaritan who in that moment had agency and we all have agency, right? Some of us just uh, use our free will better than others and make those decisions in those split seconds. And so when my mother, you know, realized that I was gone, of course, all hell broke loose at the DMV. The police were called. My father had to be reached at work to come over there as well. And by the time this woman ran back to the DMV after she saw where I had gone into, she, you know, just grabbed my mother and said, I know where your daughter is. Just follow me. And so the whole entourage of individuals started running towards the building where I was taken into and they just went floor by floor by floor. They like shut down the building and went floor by floor. And my mom said there were like, you know, 20 floors in that building. And that like by the 19th floor, they hadn't found me. And she, her heart just started to sink. She was like, that's it. She's gone. Like we're never going to see her again. And as the 19th floor elevator doors opened, I was there in the arms of this woman who apparently had like, you know, curlers in her hair and a muumuu or something. And I just was like playing with her hair and I was very happy. I was okay because I was like having a play date with a friend. And, um, and my mom was hysterical crying and I just, you know, wanted to introduce my new friend to my mom. And so, you know, there's a shock value to that story. Yes. And it's so interesting to see or hear the reactions of individuals when my mom tells that story because always it's like empathy for my mom. Oh, I can't believe what you've been through. That's so crazy. And then, you know, questions would turn to me like, do you remember any of this? And are you traumatized by this? And clearly I'm not. And I don't remember anything. I don't remember it as a traumatizing experience. I even did like regressive therapy thinking like, hmm, maybe there's something there that I don't remember. And there's like nothing there. But Never did anybody like, you know, when we would tell the story time and again, like focus on this incredible woman, like, are we still in touch with her? And and we're not, by the way, you know, it was very hard to keep in touch, much harder to keep in touch back in those days. Like there's no social media, there were no cell phones, people moved, etc. But I just 
kept focusing on her time and again in my life thinking like, God, how different would my life be if this woman didn't make that decision in a split second? And what would it take? What would it take for me to make that type of decision? Would I may have made the right decision, you know, to basically risk my life? Because really, it was risking her life in that moment, right? She could have just done nothing. She could have went to go get my mother because that would be, have been a safer decision. But she didn't know if these people were armed or if they were dangerous or what she would be walking into or if they would realize that she's following them. And yet she still decided to do that. And it's pretty incredible. And that is what stuck with me. Like, what would it take for me to be that good Samaritan? And it has inspired me and really informed a lot of the decisions I make in my life and the work that I do. And I think that that was a seed that was planted on me very early on, you know, that has now been able to uh, manifest in such incredible ways. This woman had no, I mean, she thought she was just saving me in that moment, but in many ways, she saved me many times throughout my life. I wonder if she's going to surface when the book comes out. Like, oh my I, God, I that was amazing. See. I thought about I was, that. Totally wondering the same Today thing. Show. Like that has to happen. Oh my gosh. Yes. That has that to happen. Amazing. That would be amazing. What a great story that would be. I think we're also blown away by that story. You literally it's let nuts. me blindsided. I, I have so many more questions on that story, by the way, but I will try to like temper because I'm sure everybody has a million Wait, questions. And when you was tell that the story. lady in the rollers arrested? Like, right, like that's how kind of that my question. Out? I am curious. Yeah. So then my mother obviously was like, we were reunited with, so the Good Samaritan and my mother were taken by the police to kind of like fill out some paperwork or what have you. And yes, this woman and the gentleman that was with her were arrested. And I, again, no idea, like never went down that rabbit hole of like trying to figure out what happened. I'm sure I could probably look up like maybe when I'm in New York, I'll go to the the Brooklyn, (laughs) to the New York NYPD and like ask them to go back into like the files from like the 1970s and like see if, uh, if we could find that case number and like, you know, read a little bit more about the incident. Be pretty interesting and wild. Yeah. Well, as a New Yorker, good luck with that because they're a real treat to work with when you go in and ask them to do anything for you. But I'll, I'll move on from that. That is just, that's a New Yorker truth. Okay, wait, but I, now we're talking about your family a little bit. So I got to ask you because I'm also Jewish and, and you grew up, I know, in a traditional conservative Jewish family, if I understand right, from Israel, right? And you were taught yes. to kind of follow a certain path and prescribe traditions and maybe yeah. fear certain people from other faiths. So what shifted when you discovered meditation? Oh my God, so much, you know, as an Orthodox Jew, as somebody that used to pray three times a day in a very traditional Orthodox Jewish manner, right? You would pray morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. Really, every part of my life was just very prescribed. You know, you have to say certain prayers before you eat. You have to say prayers after you eat. You have to say certain prayers when you wake up, when you see a rainbow, like when somebody dies, like there's literally like no margin of error. It's very boxed in. Right. And there's definitely beauty in that, but I am definitely not a person that has ever stayed in a box that somebody's tried to box me into. Um, I just find it very like stifling and claustrophobic. And so I've always tried to kind of like pop out of the box as much as possible. And, you know, meditation for me became a form of prayer a form of prayer that I was looking for, because I always felt like there was not enough in Hebrew, we say kavana, or in Hebrewish, you say kavana. But you know, there was not enough meaning in the prayers that I was saying, because I've been saying them my entire life. And I knew them by heart. And I still do to this day, like I can belt out like grace after meals, like nobody's business. 
But, you know, I would say them in sort of a rote manner without any meaning. And I would think about my to-do list and what I needed to eat that day and, you know, all of these other things rather than actually thinking about, oh, I need to like in this moment just be really contemplative and, you know, dive deep and connect to spirituality. And there was like nothing spiritual about it. It was like, okay, done, got that done, like won't be struck by lightning today, you know, on to the next. And when I discovered meditation, as if I quote unquote discovered it, but really when I discovered it for myself. I was just fascinated because first I always thought like many people, you know, did, especially in the nineties, you know, before like mindfulness was even like a thing that you had to be Buddhist to meditate, you know, or that you would just sit in a certain position or a certain robe or go to an ashram, or I didn't realize that it was something that like everybody can do and that everybody really should do. So that was one part of it that blew my mind. The second part was that I realized that it's a form of prayer that could come from my heart and it doesn't need any words. You know, it's something that I could really just kind of tap into and really begin to train my heart to expand out in this contemplative practice, right? I practice metta, which is loving kindness meditation. And my core teacher is Sharon Salzberg. And it has she has been, she's a New York Times bestselling author. If you don't know her, like here I am plugging her book. Like everybody pick up. We Sharon know her books. on Instagram because we interviewed <laughs> Dan Harris is a friend of our show and he uses her oh, a great. lot on his app. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. She's she's the bomb. She's the best. And you know, and she's a New Yorker as well. So she's, you know, she totally gets it. She gets the connection between the inner and the outer, but she basically, you know, I think really helped me connect the dots and recognize that, yes, it's a contemplative practice, but it's also a way for me to continue to like cultivate compassion and really start to extend compassion out to all sentient beings on this planet and not just myself, you know, and, and yourself is usually the hardest person to like extend that compassion to. I still have a lot of trouble with that, you know, after all these years. So just keep trying. That's like my message to everybody listening today. Um, But yeah, but but meditation just opened that up for me. And it brought in a lot of self-awareness about my habits, like these awful habits that I've developed over time, like the negative self-talk and how I bottle things up and just kind of push things down. And I don't talk about them until they manifest in really unhealthy ways, whether it's, you know, resentment or whether it's health issues that I've experienced in my life. And it allows me to really just not react to things in the way that I used to react to them, but actually create this like matrix moment, like in the movie where things just pause for a moment. And then I can choose to respond. How do I want to respond versus react to something? And that for me has been like the biggest benefit of meditation. Isn't that the answer, Heidi, that Dan Harris gave us? He was like, yes, it just gives me the 10 second pause to not yeah. be an asshole. Oh, yeah. and there's our explicit la- rating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was asking you a question because I, what I'm hearing is that, you know, religion to you felt very prescribed. And as like a secular Jew, I had like a kind of different experience growing up. But like my family culturally, it very much expected me to stay within the, I don't know, everybody has their own way of doing it. Like my, my mm-hmm. siblings married Jewish partners. I did not. My my father always has something to say about it. And I'm like, but I'm happy. What? And I almost <laughs> feel like that might be like a generational thing. But did your family disown you when you decided to marry outside of religion? They did, actually. I didn't speak to my parents for close to two years. My parents, basically, I was dead to them. It was like, hey, we're going to sit Shiva. Shiva mm. being, you know, the the um, 
the seven day period that you sit in mourning after a person literally dies, not, but also oh figuratively dies. If you describe, if you just decide that they're dead to you, um, you know, you basically, and here I am like chuckling about it, but it really was no laughing matter at the time. It was, a, there was a lot of angst uh, that came with that. But I also, I always leave the door open. I always left the door open. It wasn't like, okay, I'm dead. You know, well, I thought, okay, I could also be a zombie and come back from the dead. And there's, I'm going to leave the door open and allow for there to be hope because where there's love, there's hope always. And it's really, I think, incumbent upon us to always leave the door open because I think people can definitely change. Uh, people can come around. Uh, we are transformative beings who can grow and it's never too late to experience that growth. You know, even, even for my parents who really were just doing the best that they could do in that moment of their lives, right? They too being suffering beings who had grown up in a very contrived and prescribed, you know, way, uh, and thought this was the right, well, this was the right thing for us to do, because this is what our community expects for us to do, right? And what will people say? And, you know, when you kind of throw out that what will people say out the window, you realize, well, who gives a shit what people say? And oh, but who cares what people say? You know, it's really about what makes us happy and the connections that are so important. That is really the meaning of life is just the, the connections that we have and the people and Rabbi Steve says that all the time, right? It's really mm -hmm. just about the connections that we make in our lives and the people that we love and how we loved and the people that loved us. And that's the ripple that we leave behind when we go. Shelly, I just want to touch on this really quickly because Heidi and I both suffer from autoimmune. You have an autoimmune disease in your eyes, right? Yeah. I don't, and it changed the way, how did it change the way you see the world? Can you just tell us a little bit about your autoimmune? Yeah, sure. So I have something called uveitis uh, and the form of uveitis I have is pars planitis. So anybody who has uveitis will know what I'm talking about. And basically what happens is that when I'm like super stressed out and not in a, uh, in a Zen place, my brain tells my eyes that there's an infection that is not there. And so what does it do when, when, you know, what does your brain do when you have an infection somewhere? It sends white blood cells because it thinks it's doing the right thing, uh, but there's no infection. And so the white blood cells rush into my eyes and the eyes basically become engorged with like saturated with these white blood cells that then just become bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they have no way to get out. And so they, cause they can't stream like out the same way they came in. Cause they're so big at that point. And so then my capillaries in the back of my eyes start to leak into my eye cavity. And so that causes a blindness. And I found out that I had this in a very harsh way. I was going through my divorce. My son was a toddler I was living in a very toxic environment, you know, basically with the person that I was about to be divorced from and just, you know, kind of living together, but apart uh, when you're fighting over things, you know, and walls and you're trying to like do a standoff. Well, I realized, you know, when I woke up one morning and was literally blind, I could not see a thing. I had a whiteout. That's how I describe it. It wasn't darkness. It was just white. It looked like a lot, like a dense fog like San Francisco on the foggiest day where you can't even see like an inch in front of you because it's that foggy or like a plane going through a cloud and you never come out of the cloud and I was like well shit now what do I do am I never going to see again am I ever going to recover my vision and um, I wound up going to an ophthalmologist who diagnosed me 
and basically told me, okay, you have this disease and it's the leading cause of blindness in people under 40. I was 27 at the time. And when you're told that, so by the way, I'm 44 now. I do not have vision in my left eye. I could still see out of my right eye and I'm still in treatment for this and meditation definitely helps. But when you're told something like that, right? When you're told you have this finite amount of time, especially when you're not even thinking at that point, you're in your 20s, that you know, you still believe that you're immortal in some way, right? That the sands start to go through the hourglass and you're like, oh my God, like I only have possibly 13 years left to be able to see all the sunsets and sunrises I want to see. And, you know, just sort of map out my son's face and look at every flower and go to these places that I've always wanted to go to. So it's just, starts to put your life on this timeline. And in a way, it's been a blessing. I have to be honest with you. Like, I don't know that a lot of the decisions and places and, you know, things I've done in my life, that sort of why not mentality that I have of like, yeah, let's do it. You know, let's just go for it. I don't know that I necessarily would have been as much of that as I am if it wasn't for that diagnosis. Because, um, and I say in the book, one of my favorite quotes is by the poet, Mary Oliver, who I love, and I love all of her work. But one of the poems that she has that has stuck with me is when she says, someone once gave me a box of darkness, and it took me years to realize that it too was a gift. And that is the God's honest truth in terms of like how I feel about my disease, because I feel like if I didn't have that diagnosis, if that didn't happen to me, would I have just, you know, taken the risk and the chances that I have. And I, I don't know if that would be the case. It's intense. Wow. Yeah. And before we let you go, because I'm a person who's written an entire book about positivity and, and really works to prioritize positivity. So you have some beef with the mantra of positive, positive thinking, right? Can we talk it through? Sure. What's my beef? <laughs> it was, well, me. So it's sad. Okay, wait, that... I know. I knew there was a specific quote. So I'm like, yes. And I can't find the me. quote. The quote is not in front of me now, but, but yes, Obviously, I think it's very important to you, Shelly. And I'm guessing it has to do with toxic positivity. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, especially in the culture that we're living in, like, look, we, we live in an online world, especially now where we get to see everybody's, you know, highlight reels and none of the outtakes. And we're expected to be fine and chipper all the time. And I actually feel like, you know, the only way to get there is to have to go through the darkness first, you know, and to remind yourself that going through that dark, those dark times isn't a bad thing. It actually means you can still emerge, you know, in a positive light, right? And actually come out more fully and have more experiences to kind of rest on that are more authentic than like pushing down the way that we feel. So I think like, I guess my beef really is with toxic positivity that is just like this expectation that the world puts on us to just be fine all the time is that it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to talk about it. And I know that it's becoming more normalized now. And I love seeing that. I love that people are talking about their mental health struggles and people that are celebrities and that have platforms are talking about their struggles because it normalizes it. And it should be because it can be really harmful, especially for, you know, our young kids that are witnessing 
all of this positive culture all the time and recognizing that, wait a minute, that's not attainable. It's, it's not real, that it's okay to feel bad, that we have to, to be human means we have to feel all of it, like the whole emotions wheel. There's no right or wrong or positive or negative emotions. Like it's just emotions. It's part of the human experience. And we all suffer from that affliction of being human. And so we should just lean into that and be like, bring it on. I want all of it. I want grief and I want sadness and I want happiness and I want, you know, to laugh, but I also need to cry. I need to cry and I need to be diagnosed with an illness that, you know, basically helps me appreciate things like the crinkles in my mom's, like, you know, around my mom's eyes when she laughs and the way that the sunlight like hits my son's eyelashes, you know, just like things that like, who would even notice that I wouldn't have noticed that you just life just zooms right by you. And so it's like, it's like an invitation, I think, to just be okay with just what we deem to be negative emotions. So it's anti those platitudes, like good vibes only. Yes, totally. Yeah. I'm all about bad vibes too. Bad vibes. No, Megan, what <laughs> did you say? Too. What did you say? Good vibes mostly. I think you said I say good Instagram. vibes mostly. And you said one day, Shelly, on your Instagram recently, I think you held up one of your quote cards that said, We are a sad generation with happy pictures. And I yes. think, you know, we are where our show is called Off the Gram because we live so much of our life on the gram, but our entire point is just to bring forth the larger conversation. What's one layer? deeper, you know, because so much exists in the subtext and in the in-between. And, you know, the the precipice of a conversation can kind of kick off on Instagram with a pretty picture, but then there's a world beneath it that we try to delve into. And and I think that's what we're all doing here. Well, amazing. Speaking of on the gram, can you tell our listeners where they can find you on the gram? Yeah, sure. I'm mindful skater girl, as in skateboarding. Yeah. So mindful skater girl. And I am constantly trying to, you know, use my platform to be as real as I can and talk about all my afflictions. And there are many, by the way, there's a lot of, uh, as we say in Yiddish, Mishigas, like going on in this brain all the time. So I try to like, just talk about that and see, hey, who else feels this way? And oftentimes people are like, oh my God, you feel that way too? So do I. And it's like this great, like, you know, convergence of people with a lot of afflictions, which is great. And I also, on my stories every day, I share ways that people can give back to people who are in need. So opportunities for acts of kindness through pandemic of love, through people that we've pre-vetted, you know, moms and dads and struggling families, people who need everything from diapers and wipes to help with medical bills and, you know, their rent. So it's just such an easy way to kind of plug into have an act of kindness on a daily basis. Love that. That sounds absolutely amazing. So our very last segment is called Karma Cool. So, so, so Shelly. <laughs> Thanks, Meg. <laughs> I explained because I'm the resident yogi, but I'm sure you know, karma is a Sanskrit word for action. So mm-hmm. we ask all of our inspirational guests, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could do for a short period of time that would yield a much larger result? So a small mm. action result. Really look to the people that are in that circle of influence that we talked about earlier and ask a person every day what they need, not how are you, not, you know, how you doing, but actually like, what do you need? 
what can I take off your plate? What can I help you with? If you have the capacity to do so in this moment, and maybe it's not every day, maybe it's even just once a week, right? But the ripples and the responses that you're going to get are going to be immeasurable and incredible. And you'll be surprised because eventually the question will be turned back to you. And you'll be able to very easily, without any embarrassment, or even really having to be too vulnerable, or ashamed, because there's there's a lot of shame that people feel when they have to ask for help, you'll be able to ask for something that you need as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for being with us today. We absolutely adore you, your mission, everything you're about. Everyone, go out and buy her book, Sit Down to Rise Up, which is available when again? October 26th. Thank you. October 26th. So just at the end of this month, you can go out and get that. It is available on New World Library and you can get it, I'm sure, everywhere books are sold. Yep. And thank you again. We adore you. Come back another time soon. Inspire us all. I will, for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shelly. Thank you, Shelly. Thank you. All right, guys. What did you think? I mean, obviously, we all could have talked to her for like a million hours. <laughs> there are so many questions about everything. Well, first of all, she like literally because she's so dynamic, like her life, her life and her story goes in a million different directions. Like I wanted to talk to her even more about inspiring the entire world and being altruistic, but also that story about being kidnapped. Like, I mean, what? that's that was crazy. I actually took notes and I've never taken notes during this show before, but I'm like, oh, I want to remember that. Right, because um, there was so much. Yeah, there was like a lot. Just this whole concept of responding versus reacting, because I'm very mm. reactive and I want to be a better responder versus a reactor. And it was just a good reminder. She's cool. Just like Jamie said, though, Dan Harris brought that up. And that was mm-hmm. like a real, and that's, I mean, that's kind of how, look, that's my world, right? Like yoga, meditation, that's my world. And that's what everybody says about meditation, but like nobody gets it until they yeah, but, feel it. And also I, yeah. I need to hear things three times before I listen. Just so I mean, it's the That's very test. short, Megan. Some people need to hear it 3000 times. So consider yourself way ahead. Tell me, I tell just me love the idea of like, you know, uh, I loved what she said about just like the, the industrial wellness, like complex of just being like, we just need to just get our inner peace. It's like enough about you, 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 me, 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 me. Are any of us getting better that way? No. Go out, be of service, rise up, help somebody else. And then you feel better about yourself. And I always tell my ladies in my program in the big ask, because kind of like the big reveal at the end of my program, the spoiler alert, I guess, is that like, and now you get to go out and reach out your hand and give back to somebody else. And they're like, what? Huh? I didn't pay you to come into this program for you to tell me to help someone else. And I'm like, here's the, here's the big twist, plot twist. It's to help you because when you go out and listen to somebody else's Mishigas and help them in their, in their dealings, in their situation, and you become more aware of other people's problems, it makes yours seem a little smaller. It puts everything in perspective. It's a global like thread in the fabric. It's just how we get better. That's why I love her karma call. Just simply asking, what do you need? And when you feel like you have nothing to give, that's when you need to give the most. Because I think when you do good, you feel good. 100% percent Meg. What do you need? I also love the term because sometimes when you ask people that, it's overwhelming. Like, cause they're like, I don't know. I need so many things. I don't even know where to start. And like, I can't ask for things. I can't ask for things. So another way to phrase that is how can I support you? It just, because like you know how 
different people hear different things. Mm. And I just, I love that, that idea that she does that. And I love a lot of people don't think they have anything to offer. That's what I love so much about what she did over the pandemic with this project was to, to just list it out on a simple Google doc at first, because then somebody reading it might be like, Oh, I didn't think I have anything to offer. But I actually do because people really don't think. But I think it's important because a lot of people don't think they have anything to offer and they do. Yeah, no, it's pretty much the same point I was going to make, which is that my sister during the floods a couple of weeks ago, uh, the hurricane, her entire she lives in Westchester, New York, and everybody in her town got like destroyed. And she just something the spirit of the universe took her and she dropped everything for literally like two or three weeks and created that exact type of Google Doc and was like, people who need, people who can give. And she was like, does anybody know how to do paperwork for insurance? Does anybody have clothes to give? Can anybody do a, you know, go in and help people clear out their basement? Do you have like water, you know, whatever stuff. And she started connecting people with other people, just people though. Nothing like big and systemic and structural. She wasn't changing policy. She was like, oh, you have a generator. They need a generator like that. And she did it at like a local level. And man, she affected her community. And it took her her two fingers, her computer, and a Google spreadsheet. And I think there's more people like that. But the the negative stories tend to get so loud. I mean, there's someone in East Orange, New Jersey, called the Black Fairy Godmother who uses, you know, social media to make sure that, you know, people have diapers and that women who are in abusive relationships have shelter as they, you know, transition out of those bad relationships. So there are so many people doing good. It's been amazing to have this spotlight shown on Shelly. I mean, she's had insane supporters. We're talking everybody from like Joe Biden to Kristen Bell. I mean, it's nuts. I mean, Deborah Messing's hosting her book launch. Deborah Messing's hosting her book launch. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, I think this is a great place to wrap it. She was incredible. If you want to know more about her, go follow her on the gram. We all went in like a huge rabbit hole of her um, Instagram and it's pretty much endless and her and her entire family are like the cutest humans. So I I highly recommend, highly recommend. But anyway, thank you everybody for tuning in today. We hope that you will follow not only Shelly, but us on the gram. We are off the gram podcast and don't forget to subscribe to our show anywhere podcasts can be consumed. We'll see you next time. Bye.